Hello, I'm Jared Manning, a pastor at Grace Bible Church in Clute, Texas, and I want to welcome you to the audio version of our Systematic Theology course. This is part of our Grace Seminars held one Saturday each month from 8 a.m. to noon. We'd love for you to join us if you're able. Uh, you can find dates and register at connect.gbctx.org under events or on our Facebook page under events. There's no cost to join and breakfast and class materials are provided. And we recognize that not everyone's schedule allows you to attend, so we want to make these available to you via podcast. I hope you enjoy this course on systematic theology. Welcome back. As we continue our study in the doctrine of the word, I want to read over us Psalm 119 verses 97 through 104. The psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Could you say the same things about God's word? My aim and prayer for you in this session is that this class will give you a right doctrine of the word that leads you to a deep love for the word of God, all to the glory of God. In the last session, we considered how God is a God who speaks. He's revealed himself in his son, Jesus, the word made flesh, and in his word, the Bible. We also considered how both the Old and New Testaments come to us as authoritative revelation from God. He expresses his good rule over us through his word. We are his creatures and thus are obligated to believe it and obey it. Now we're going to consider two main things. Number one, the canon of scripture and the qualities of scripture. In other words, what books does the Bible consist of? That is the canon. And then what makes the Bible distinctive and unique? Those are its qualities. We begin with the canon of Scripture because as soon as we affirm the authority of Scripture, that raises the question of which writings represent God's authoritative revelation. This is the question of canon. Canon is the Greek transliteration of a Semitic word that means measuring read or rule or standard. This is an important question, especially because there are popular TV specials today that wrongly depict the Bible's history, like a seedy political drama with backroom deals to get this book in and keep that book out. There are lots of resources for dealing with the trustworthiness of Scripture and faithful transmission, but today uh, we're going to restrict ourselves to this key question of what books belong in the Bible. So let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is traditionally divided into the law, prophets, and writings. And though these books were written in different places and at different times, a recognition grew in Judaism that the books all belonged together and constituted God's verbal revelation to his people. The picture we get from early Jewish sources and from the New Testament itself is that the Old Testament canon was simply a settled matter among the Jews of Jesus' day. We, we have no record of any dispute between Jesus and other Jews over it, and Jesus got into plenty of disputes with the Pharisees and the scribes. 
Jesus himself in Luke 24, 44 refers to the scripture as the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms or the writings. This is the traditional Hebrew division. He says each of these sections of the Old Testament pointed to him and was fulfilled by him. Now, the Jews had other books, of course, including commentaries on biblical books, but they were never referred to as scripture, the very words of God. Some of these books, known as the Apocrypha, were bound alongside the Greek translation of the Old Testament many hundreds of years later in the 4th century AD, but even then, early Christians didn't treat these books as scripture, but rather as inspirational devotional writings. But what about the New Testament? Um, Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There's a pattern. In the Old Testament, God acts and then provides the interpretations of those actions for us through the written word. It was the same with the coming of Christ. God acted by sending his son and then provided written interpretation of that action. Some writers give the false impression that the church took an exceedingly long time to recognize the authority of the New Testament documents, pointing to the Council of Carthage in 397 as the date when the final decision was made about which books were in and which were out. But it's important to note the distinction between the recognizing the authority of a book and drawing up a list that includes the book. The latter would have taken some time, especially in the ancient world, and yet the 27 New Testament books have been widely in circulation for centuries and been treated as scripture from the beginning. It's simply bad history to say that the early Christians had a vast variety of created beliefs and whole bookshelves full of alternate gospels and texts. The only Christian writings that have been confidently dated to the first century are the books of the New Testament themselves. Yes, a few leaders debated whether a few books were authoritative, mainly letters like Hebrews and James and Jude and Revelation, which have slightly different themes and emphases than Paul's letters. But compared to unbiblical books, which were roundly rejected without much controversy, these books were by and large accepted around the Christian world. In fact, whenever someone asks, how do you know that the Gospels in the Bible are the oldest, most original documents and that the other Gospels weren't all destroyed in some devious political conspiracy, we have two basic responses. First, early believers cared very much about the truth and defended in their letters why the books of the New Testament are authoritative. These guys had lots of theological differences. And they came from different parts of the world, yet we don't see them arguing for the inclusion of Gnostic Gospels. Second, we can ask a person if they've ever actually read any of these alternate texts. All you need to do is read them and you'll see that they're trying to replicate the Gospel format, but to present a radically different message. The Gospel of Peter, for example, um, it claims to reveal secret teachings of Jesus that nobody else knows about. It's obvious that it's a response to the true Gospels trying to get people to disbelieve them. Only a book that came many years after the real Gospels would make a claim like that. As Christians, we ultimately affirm that Scripture is self-authenticating. It affirms and testifies to its own truthfulness. Yes, we can demonstrate its accuracy by corroborating it with other historical sources, but at the end of the day, the Christian receives scripture as the word of God because the Holy Spirit who inspired it testifies to the believer that it's true. Jesus speaking of himself as the good shepherd taught, 
The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. John 10.4 Amazingly, but not surprisingly, it's common to hear Muslims and other non-Christians say when they read scripture for the first time, now this is what I would expect a word from God to sound like. So how did the early Christians know which writings came from God and which did not? It's important to note that they did not see themselves as choosing or deciding the books of the Bible. Rather, they spoke of receiving or inheriting the authoritative books from each previous generation. They saw these books as having authority because they came from God, not because any church or leader put a stamp of approval on them. But they didn't just accept them blindly. They actually had four criteria for demonstrating that their acceptance of these books was legitimate. That's what we're going to look at now. The first criterion was apostolicity. That's a big word. (laughs) In other words, was the document written by an apostle or someone with immediate contact to an apostle? Only those who knew Jesus or were intimate companions of his disciples could credibly write about Christ. The second criteria was antiquity. Even if somebody tried to slap an apostle's name on a book, the book had to be known to originate from the time of the apostles. This is what eliminated so many of the later quote-unquote gospels and Gnostic writings. Third, was conformity to the rule of faith or orthodoxy. A book had to ring consistent and conform to the truth already given, either that which was passed down orally or in the biblical books that had begun to spread already. It's easy to see why a book like the so-called Gospel of Thomas failed this test. In it, Jesus says he will make Mary a male because women can only enter the kingdom of heaven if they become male. That's totally contradictory to what Paul says about male and female inheriting the kingdom of God in Galatians, one of the earliest biblical books written. Fourth was universality. That is widespread and continuous usage by the churches across the known world. What's remarkable from a human perspective is that there was so much agreement on so many books so quickly. We struggle to get people to agree on preference issues in the church, like worship styles and carpet color and all kinds of other things. But these people agreed on whole books that should be recognized as scripture. A couple of important implications of all this. First, the church didn't create the Bible by its authority, as Roman Catholicism teaches. It's the other way around. The Bible possessed its inherent authority as God's word, and it's that word that brought life to the church. So the church merely recognized what God had already inspired. Second, we're not surprised that the canon is closed with the passing of Christ and the apostles. In the same way it's closed with the end of the Old Testament prophetic era in anticipation of Christ, so it closed with the passing of Christ as we now await his return. The Old Testament passage like Malachi 4 and Deuteronomy 18 indicate that there was more prophecy to come, but the New Testament now doesn't give us any expectation of more revelation. We need no more, and we should expect no more. We can trust the word that we've received, and we should praise God for how he has shined his light into our darkness and brought us this word that we hadn't deserved to know. Let's turn now to what makes scripture unique. Scripture makes some astounding claims about itself, and Jesus himself treated the Old Testament according to these claims. We want to have the same view of the Bible that Jesus did. 
um, I would urge you to go onto our website at gbctx.org and pull up our Constitution under Article 4, Section A of the GBC Doctrinal Statement. You will read our full summary of what we believe about the Bible. First, we see that Scripture is divinely inspired. Scripture is God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Or 2 Peter 1.20-21 says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as this. What Scripture says, God says. This doesn't mean that God obliterated the personality or the will of the writer, nor does this require us to take a dictation view of the Bible where men became mere robots or marionettes to God. Both King David and the Apostle Paul have their own personalities and styles, and God, through his own providential and supernatural activity, works within each author to ensure what they write is his word. Theologians call this process concursus, from the Latin concurre, to run together. Why does this doctrine matter? If the Bible is of human origin, it can always be improved upon or rejected. The Bible would evolve with the times, but if it's of divine origin, the Bible is timeless. It stands over us as our judge and not the other way around. We need to repent of our tendency to obey scripture only when it seems reasonable or when it's culturally acceptable. And most basically, if you want to encounter God, the God who made you and who made and sustains everything around you, where do you go? We find God in his word. That's what he gave us. So to apply this, let me encourage you simply to learn the Bible. God didn't inspire just parts of it, not just the most famous bits or the sections that seem most relevant to us or the ones that we plaster on coffee mugs and refrigerator magnets, but he inspired all of it. Can you sum up the message of the book of Judges? What about Nahum or Third John? Why not make it your goal to learn a few books of the Bible really well each year, and within 10 or 20 years, you will know the Bible like the back of your hand. Secondly, we believe that the Bible is inerrant. It's God's word to us. The inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not err or say anything false or untrue. In other words, the Bible always tells the truth regarding everything it talks about. To err is human. But Proverbs 35 states, every word of God proves true. Hebrews 6 verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. Though the Bible was written by fallen men, God so ordained its inspiration that they did not make any mistakes. And this is how Jesus treated the Bible. He said that scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. And this doctrine is of the uttermost importance for centuries. It was enough for Christians to affirm scripture is absolutely true. But these days, I think it's important to use this slightly more obnoxious word inerrant because there are some professing believers that have argued that the Bible conveys spiritual truth, but it still makes human errors. They say this in the hope of making scripture more attractive to a skeptical world, but it's deeply problematic. If scripture makes some mistakes, 
How can we trust it for the most important things? Now, rather than accepting everything scripture says, you open up the possibility for human beings to say, well, that hard teaching is an error. I'm not going to accept that part. Who's to judge what to accept and what to reject? The Bible doesn't divide itself into spiritual claims on the one hand and historical or factual claims on the other. It presents itself as absolutely true. So we should apply this doctrine of an inerrancy by trusting in the Bible. Practically speaking, this means when you come across things in scripture that are hard to stomach or difficult to understand, give yourself to figuring them out. God doesn't lie. He doesn't contradict himself. He has put this in his word for a reason, and you can benefit from every verse of it. Thirdly, we believe in the infallibility of scripture or that God's word is reliable. We see that scripture is infallible, which is closely related to inerrancy. Inerrancy is the thing itself. The Bible is wholly true. Infallibility refers to the result of that. So because the Bible is true or inerrant, therefore, it never deceives or misleads us. Infallibility. So, for example, we believe in an inerrant Bible, and so we believe that there was a real man named Jonah who was swallowed by a great fish and was inside the fish for three days. If we are also to say that the Bible is infallible, then we are agreeing that this event is reliable and profitable for us. In fact, that's an easy example because Jesus himself so clearly believed in the Jonah story as historical fact and saw it as pointing to his death and resurrection, as we see in Matthew 12, 40. A brief aside, uh, you'll occasionally find some who will happily affirm the infallibility of the Bible, and one would think that they hold the scriptures in high regard, but they quietly won't affirm inerrancy. In other words, they would say the Bible is infallible and thus trustworthy in matters of faith and practice, but that doesn't mean everything it records literally happened. It has to be spiritualized and so that you take the husk of some historical event that may not be true and find the spiritual seed inside it. Beware of that theological sleight of hand. Infallibility is crucial because it means we can practically depend on scripture for direction and guidance in life. It's a treasure of heavenly instruction, to quote Capitol Hill Baptist Church's statement of faith. So if you're in the guttural throes of depression, if you're struggling with sin, looking for wisdom, God's word is your heavenly guide. Practically speaking, this is an important argument for memorizing scripture. Hide it in your heart so that when the storms of life come, you can recite the promises of God's word to yourself. Fourthly, we see that scripture is clear. We believe in the clarity of scripture, that God's word is understandable. This is often referred to as the perspicuity of scripture, if you want a big theological word. The perspicuity or clarity of scripture means ordinary people, not just pastors or super mature Christians, are able to read the Bible for themselves and rightly understand it. In Psalm 19.7, David writes that the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. In Deuteronomy 6, parents are told to teach God's words to their kids because the assumption is that kids can get it. While we know that some scripture can be difficult to understand, remember 2 Peter 3.16 and talking about Paul's writing, this is because none of us has perfect wisdom. It's not due to the nature of the Bible. At its core, scripture isn't a mystical puzzle requiring special knowledge to unlock some secret code. It's accessible to all, 
Paul wrote most of his letters not to church leaders, but to whole congregations, including educated and uneducated believers. Remember, many of the people in the first century would have been illiterate. They couldn't even read. The clarity of scripture does not mean that all believers agree on every teaching of scripture, however. Many will ask if scripture is clear, then why do we have different interpretations of what various passages means? While God's word is perfect, the people he gave it to are not. Generally, evangelical Christians are largely in agreement on the essential matters, such as the gospel, but we might differ on the non-essentials, which are relatively less clear in the scripture, such as the millennium. The clarity of scripture means studying God's word isn't a fruitless venture. It's worth your time. Missions and translation work are not in vain. People from every culture can understand the Bible. So in your evangelism, use the Bible. Invite non-Christians to read it for themselves and let the supernatural power and clarity of its word accomplish what your words alone simply cannot do. Get them to take up and read the word of God. There's a wonderful book um, called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. Um, Nick was a missionary in Somaliland in the 90s and later began to travel all over the Middle East and the Eastern world interviewing uh, Christians who were being persecuted in places that were close to the gospel. And he shares story upon story of people who um, got the word of God and received the gospel in very acts-like ways. Um, One story he tells is of a man who lived in a Muslim country close to the gospel who kept having a recurring dream of a blue book on a bookshelf. And so the man began to search every um, bookstore in his village for this book that he kept seeing in this dream over and over and over. And finally he was in a Quran store and the single blue book that he found on the shelf was a Bible and he bought the Bible and he read it and he trusted Christ. The Bible itself is clear. It's clear enough for people to know God and be saved by him. So use the Bible. Fifth, we see that scripture is necessary. God's word is indispensable to us. The necessity of scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel. It's necessary for maintaining a spiritual life and for knowing God's will. It's not It's not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. These can be seen from what we call God's general revelation in nature, according to Romans 1, and in one's own conscience, according to Romans 2. But we've all suppressed this natural or general knowledge of God. Later, in Romans 10, Paul is crystal clear that we can only be saved if we hear the good news of Jesus, and that good news comes through God's special revelation, which we now have recorded in the Bible. So scripture is necessary in a primary sense for us to learn the way of salvation, but it's also necessary in a secondary sense and that we regularly need to hear God's word in order to know him better, to grow in him, to love him more, to be convicted of our sin and have our hearts stirred to praise him. Psalm 1-2 says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. Quick application um, to meditate on scripture means to fill our minds with its meaning and prayerfully seek to understand it. 
there's an easy way to get yourself to meditate and take a verse read it over several times emphasizing a different word each time to understand the contribution that that single word makes to the sentence so for example the lord is my shepherd i shall not want the lord is my shepherd i shall not want the lord is my shepherd i shall not want the lord is my shepherd i shall not want the lord is my shepherd i shall not want the lord is my shepherd I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. By simply doing that, we meditate on the scripture and we take in what each word of the scripture has and contributes to the verse. I would also highly recommend a new app that is available um, called the Dwell Bible app. The Dwell Bible app. Um, it's an app that's available on iPhone and Android. Um, it's, it costs a little bit of money. I think it's 4 or $5. Um, it's well worth the investment. Um, the Dwell app is a Bible uh, an audio Bible that has music. You can choose what music plays under um, the reading of the scripture. There are five different voices that you can choose from to read the scripture to you. It has what's called a dwell mode um, where you can set a chapter or a certain passage of the Bible to repeat over and over again with a pause between for meditation. Um, if you want to meditate on the scripture and you're a, an audio person, as you might be since you're listening to this podcast, I highly recommend the Dwell Bible app. Finally, we see that scripture is sufficient. The sufficiency of scripture means that scripture contained all the words of God that God intended his people to have at each stage of redemption history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This means that you have everything you need in order to obey God in the Bible. You don't need a special word or sign in the sky or an open door to know what to do. God is all-powerful and can certainly do what he wants. But he doesn't tell us to expect such things. He tells us to learn the Bible and apply its wisdom to the hard decisions of life. So if you're struggling with holiness, with contentment, marriage, your work, parenting, with simply knowing and believing God, and I think I'm describing all of us here, why would you not daily immerse yourself with the scriptures? They are sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. So take up and read. Praise God for his inspired, inerrant, infallible, clear, necessary, and sufficient word. A couple of book recommendations for you on the doctrine of the word, um, Taking Him at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. He is there and he is not silent by Francis Schaeffer, along with The Doctrine of the Word of God by John Frame and Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, chapters 2 through 8. 
I would also highly recommend you Google the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which was written in 1978. You would do well to familiarize yourself with that document. That concludes our session on the doctrine of the word. Thank you to the brothers and sisters of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for generously providing the material for this study.